Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network and MIMO. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim and Consensus's Ben Edgington. Hi, everybody. Ben here. Christine and I are going to go through your weekly roundup of markets, tech, and community-related news about Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0. But first, before we do that, Christine, are you looking forward to the Olympics? They start this week, I think, over in uh, Tokyo. Seems like a bit of a weird one. They've just kind of snuck up on me this year. Usually I kind of look forward to it for weeks uh, ahead of time, and it's all a, a great thing, but it seems a bit down this year. What do you think? Normally, I look forward to the Olympics as well, but this year with all the concerns around COVID, I just think it's a little bit too early. I, I read the headline just not a couple of weeks ago that some athletes had got COVID in the village, the Olympic village there, I guess, and that many sponsors of the Tokyo Olympics are too afraid to go to the actual event because of COVID concerns. So I usually normally enjoy watching like the gymnastics portion of the Olympics, particularly, but also on top of COVID, there's some athletes that weren't able to attend the Olympics for, yeah, some silly reasons. Like I forget her name, but she, she was like the fastest short runner, track runner in America. And she wasn't able to attend one of the events, I think, because um, they did a drug test on her. And I think they found like traces of weed. Yeah. Which kind of made me sad. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. It's a strange one, isn't it? No spectators. It's going to be very odd, but hopefully it will, you know, gain some momentum and get some excitement going and there will be some uh, good events and good sports. I do enjoy a bit of track cycling. This is, this is my thing. Don't often get to see. Are there any, you, you said gymnastics, anything else you, you like the look of? Is swimming in this one? Oh yeah, should be. Yes. I'm excited for that. I love swimmer bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds very silly, but it's true. What can I say? I'm very attracted. Better move on swiftly. <laughs> so, Christine, Moving on swiftly. What's, what's our markets? What's our markets report th this week? Okay, fine. <laughs> markets. We're going to start off this show today by talking about the crypto markets and the fact that Tether USDT, the most popular, the most used dollar peg stablecoin Tether, has stopped printing. Last week, we talked a little bit about the dollar peg stablecoin USDC, which was created in partnership between Circle and Coinbase. And it looks like USDC might be gaining more momentum to unseat the oldest and the most used stablecoin Tether. The issuance of new Tether coins has been at a flat zero since the end of May. And I don't know how nobody noticed this until now, but from January to May, the supply of Tether had practically tripled. It had grown 400%. So just the fact that it suddenly stopped for the past two months is quite interesting. And while it stopped, USDC has grown pretty modestly from about 21 billion to 25 billion coins in circulation. So there's lots of rumors going around trying to figure out 
why don't we see that kind of incredible growth that we saw in the beginning of this year continuing on over the past couple months for Tether? Ben, from the rumors that you've heard, why do you think that Tether supply has just stopped, stopped growing? It must be pretty much the only kind of dollar that's not actually printing at the moment. I have never used USDT. It's always seemed a little bit, I hesitate to say shady, but there's something not quite right. There's a lack of transparency about it. And I hear lots of, you know, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt uh, around Twitter and, and elsewhere. And it just sort of makes me a little cautious. And when there are other alternatives like USDC or DAI, which I, I understand much better and have better transparency, I'm sort of more confident to use those. And there doesn't seem to be any need to use Tether. I don't know if others feel like that, whether there's a broader kind of feeling that this is questionable. But that's always been my sort of slightly cautious uh, take on it. Yeah. What do you think, Christine? hundred percent. Tether's legal battle with the New York Department of like Financial Services or something like that, that case was only settled just a couple months ago. And in it, I think Tether really confirmed that their reserves are not backed one-to-one. They keep a fractional reserve and that part of the issuance of Tether, there is dollars backing it, but there's a, a section of their reserves that's just kind of used for more riskier investments. And you're right that one of the reasons people have thrown around for why Tether isn't being printed is, you know, people don't really trust USDT anymore. And that demand has gone to USDC, which is comparatively more transparent. Now, the other reason that I thought was really interesting and shared by Mu Yao Shen, Coindesk Markets reporter, was that China's crypto crackdown as of late has also impacted USDT circulation that many of the Chinese traders, investors that do use uh, USDT as an on-ramp to crypto markets because they're not able to trade as much uh, due to the regulatory crackdown that they're facing. That's why we're not seeing very much growth in the USDT supply. I will say as one caveat, this whole story doesn't mean that Tether is dead. This is not the first time that we've seen Tether issuance just kind of like lull to a zero level for months at a time. We saw this kind of similar decrease, decline in early 2019. So we'll have to see when Tether issuance rises back up again, if it does, how quickly, how soon, and what kind of events really trigger it to come back. So that's something we want to keep an eye on. And definitely with Circle going public, which we talked about last week on last week's show, seeing how Circle going public at the end of this year will impact how much USDC is in circulation and whether that really becomes the dominant stablecoin. That'll be an exciting turn of events if and when it does happen. Yeah, stablecoins are definitely a really huge topic, as we discussed last time. I read something somewhere on Twitter, as you do, passed along my timeline about the US government exploring regulating stablecoins, and they had various models for doing this. They don't seem very keen on decentralized or algorithmic stablecoins, I guess, because there's no way to control them. So that might be an interesting development in future. They're talking, uh, the article I saw even contained the phrase taxing stablecoins out of existence, which <laughs> was slightly alarming. But, you know, ultimately, it doesn't rely on the US government. And this is the whole premise of crypto, right, is that we operate outside of any single jurisdiction. So going to be interesting to see that one, how it develops. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, I know that uh, Tether and USDC are often the stable coins we talk about when it comes to the news, but the most interesting ones to talk about from a technical perspective and also from the perspective of what is possible is the algorithmic ones. Like the, the whole system that makes DAI possible from MakerDAO, I think is fascinating and is such a huge innovation that people don't quite appreciate enough the fact that this dollar peg stable coin has stuck around through so many fluctuations of ETH price and the US dollar price that this peg uh, to the dollar has been algorithmically just kept stable for all these months, I think is incredible. Um, so yeah, I really, I have much respect to the MakerDAO system. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is the original DeFi project and it underpins so much of sort of what we think of as modern DeFi. People just take it for granted, but it's it's there and you're absolutely right. It survives some incredible market cycles, brilliant development. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one euro peg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio. Open a vault and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's Mimo, M-I-M-O, dot capital. So, Christine, shall we talk about our tech segment? Have it a move this on? This is an exciting one. <laughs> so you wrote last week about something called time bandit attacks, which sounds really exciting. Shall I explain a little bit about the background, the tech technical kind of understanding of time bandit attacks? Yes, you probably can explain it much better than I can. <laughs> I don't think so. Your, your, your article was, uh, was good read, really good. Let's talk about what's going on here. So as an example, we are proof of work miners. So you're a miner, Christine, I'm a miner, and we're trying to build blocks on the blockchain. I see you've made a block and you've managed to capture some big rewards, some MEV that you've unearthed maybe 10 Ether for the sake of argument. So you've made a huge profit on this block that you've just mined. I'm a miner as well. And I'm thinking, well, actually, I'd, I'd like that for myself. Your transactions are in your block and I can see what they are. So I can steal those transactions and I can try and build a competing block on top of the parent of your block. So basically kick you out of the blockchain. So it's like going back in time as if your block never happened. And I can get the transactions that you included and I get the reward instead of you. So we're, we're kind of competitive miners competing against each other. That's really the essence of the attack. And the problem with it is it's kind of destabilizing for users because you see a block, you think your transaction's confirmed, and then suddenly it goes away and it may or may not be included in, in the next block. So it breaks user experience to a certain extent and is not really good for stability of the blockchain. Is that a fair explanation on your understanding, Christine? 
I have a question about that though, mm. because if I propose a block and I get a crazy amount of rewards, like 10 ETH, because there was just a very big trade that happened on a decentralized exchange and it happened to, yeah, just make me as a trader and a miner a lot of profit. When I propose that block and other miners collectively agree, like the majority of other miners on the network agree that this is the next, this is the next canonical block for a competing miner to propose a, a different block, basically a different split to the network where instead of, you know, block 200, I'm going to propose block 200 version two. Wouldn't I have to get the agreement of like the 50%, at least 50% of other miners in the network? And then also, wouldn't I also have to mine an additional block on top of that? So not just block 200 version two, but I'd also need block 201 so that it would be a longer chain because the other block has already been affirmed. It's already been, how you say, finalized even though I guess you could take, you know, three to four blocks to, to really finalize the chain. But presumably if you've proposed just one block and everybody else has agreed, it's somewhat confirmed. So for the competing miner that wants to do a time bandit attack, isn't it extremely difficult to have not only just one block, but two blocks, and then also have the entire, the rest of the mining network agree with you that your block is, is the correct one? Like, how is that even feasible? I mm. thought that the network was a lot more secure than that. Yep, you're spot on. It's not easy to do. So you, you have to build a longer chain. And the way that the Bitcoin and Ethereum proof of work networks function is that longest chain wins. So even if people have seen a different chain previously, if I can produce a longer chain than you have by building, as you say, two blocks for your one block, then the whole of the network has to accept my chain. That's the rule. That's the easy part. The hard part is me building two blocks because I'm competing with all the other miners on the network to build those blocks. And this is where the where this time bandit attack becomes perhaps unfeasible is you probably need 40% plus hash rate on the network really to be able reliably to pull it off with any probability of, of success. And yeah, the calculations are not simple because there are all sorts of uh, subtleties in there. But yeah, unless you've really got 40% plus of miners in a pool who are contributing to get this MEV, uh, then it's not going to be feasible to, to run this attack. So that's a really important point. And I think there's been a bit hysteria about this in the last couple of weeks on Ethereum Twitter. Somebody proposed to make some code that miners could run and it would identify opportunities to run time bandit attacks and people were up in arms and the developer of this code got kind of shouted down and pulled it and it was all a bit of drama and we love a bit of tech drama, but actually I think it was probably somewhat unwarranted because um, it's just not that easy to do. It's a nice theoretical attack, but in practice, will it really work? Interesting. So the the proposal, the the GitHub repo that Edgar Arutunian, I'm sure I'm saying his last name wrong. My apologies, Edgar, but he was the one that had created that GitHub repository codifying how payments to miner can be facilitated to actually reorganize the blockchain. And then on top of his, there was another Twitter user. Her handle was OX Bunny Girl. She also created a public GitHub code repository for profitable MEV extraction 
through block reorganizations. And MEV, just for our listeners who, who don't know what that stands for, it stands for minor slash maximal extractable value, basically the value that miners get for being able to reorder transactions within a block or clearly reorder the blocks themselves. So just to confirm, these GitHub repositories, they only support the, the kind of payments to miners for doing an activity like this, but they don't secure or pool together the hash power to make this possible. Is that right? So as a miner, if you're using this kind of a code, you can't just spin it up and then you know, easily be able to reorganize the chain. You'd still have to amass a very high amount of computational power for yourself, right? Like around 40%, as you said, Ben? That's my understanding. And that's not easy to do to get that coordination. And of course, whatever reward you get, you, you need to spread out amongst all the miners who contributed to that hash power and so on. So the rewards, you know, that 10 ETH that I saw in your block, it's not all mine. I have to spread it out across everybody who contributed this hash rate. So it's not obviously a, a great deal. This opens a can of worms, right? Because I've no doubt that this Edgar was intending to help by exposing an issue. And he was proposing a sort of open exploration of what this might look like. And we exist in an adversarial environment and where, you know, we're going to come under attack. And I kind of prefer it was the good guys who are revealing the, the issues rather than the bad guys just kind of doing it in, the, in dark corners and we've got no transparency. But on the other hand, it was perceived as an attack on Ethereum and got a very negative pushback in the event, which I kind of worry about because it discourages people from coming forward with you know, creative ideas or speaking up about things and you know, turns grey hats into black hats, which not what we want. Just a, a word about how this might play out in future. There's, we're moving to proof of stake. Uh, as you know, this is what ETH 2.0 is uh, all about. It looks very different. So proof of stake doesn't use this longest chain rule. We have, we call it LMD ghost, which is an acronym of an acronym, but basically it's driven by votes from the validators. So what you said earlier, Christine, about the network having to accept the block is not the case in, in proof of work, that's automatic, but in proof of stake, that is the case. Validators vote for what they think is the best block. So. You've got thousands and thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of validators voting, and somehow you've got to coordinate all of that. It's not the case. In proof of work, I can act alone if I have enough hash rate and propose a new chain, and the network has to accept it. In proof of stake, I can propose a block that differs from what the network expects, but I still have to get the votes in for that block. So I have to control the voters and control their votes, and it's just more complicated to do. I wouldn't say it's impossible. There's some analysis going on at the moment about how feasible it might be and, and so on, but it's definitely not easy. And validators would have to suppress their votes, which means losing rewards and so on. So it's a more complex calculation about the feasibility of this. Speaking about the feasibility of this in light of proof of stake, do you think that miners on Ethereum are more likely to band together to execute these kinds of block reorganizations because of the fact that, you know, proof of stake is supposed to be executed within a year's time. I think one of the reasons why this whole time banded attack got a bit more traction is because before this kind of an attack would reduce the legitimacy or the validity of the Ethereum blockchain as a whole. And hence it would hurt minor profits if the value of ETH were to go down as a result of increasing time banded attacks. 
but because you know miners are going to have to retire their machines anyways within a couple months up to a year's time perhaps they're more incentivized to, to really try and be more experimental be more careless about the way that they start mining the chain there is a school of thought that miners might be more willing to attack the chain they've got nothing to lose as we move to proof of stake they don't have a future expected value of their their eth to worry about so much because they can just sell it uh, as they go uh, and their equipment will be redundant so we'll see how it plays out i'm not so concerned about this i i generally think miners are not bad guys that's my kind of starting position that really they've got little to gain from attacking the chain and ultimately they're attacking each other i mean this is a sort of zero-sum game between miners this uh, time bandit attack I generally think expect miners to be pretty well behaved. There might be some go rogue, but you, I don't see the majority going rogue just because they have nothing to lose with the move to prove a stake. We'll see. We're going to keep a close eye on this as well in the coming months, especially leading up to proof of stake and see if any of these GitHub repositories do get used at all. But for our final segment today on the show, we wanted to talk to everyone about the Ethereum Community Conference the largest Ethereum community conference that's happening in Europe called ETHCC. And it's happening in Paris, France tomorrow as of the time of this recording. So it's Monday, July 19th. And it's going to be happening basically from Tuesday all the way to Friday. Is that right? It finishes on Thursday. So it'll be all, all over by the shouting by the time the podcast goes out. Yeah, it's a great event, and I am experiencing massive FOMO, fear of missing out. I'm not traveling to it this year. I missed it last year. It kind of brackets the COVID era. It was pretty much the last event before everything went into lockdown across Europe last year. And this year, it's pretty much the first Ethereum, certainly the first Ethereum conference, big one that's happened since things have started opening up again. It's, I'm pretty sure these second largest Ethereum conference that sort of happens annually after DevCon. Um, It's kind of become DevCon 2. Yeah, I'm not traveling, sadly. I'm worried, though, just like we talked about the Tokyo Olympics, as much as I am excited for the kind of, you know, live stream talks and live stream panels that are going to be going on last year, ETHCC was a super spreader, you know, over a dozen Ethereum ticket holders who participated in the conference. They tested positive for coronavirus after they went to the event. And this year, ETHCC has tried to make it as safe as possible by making the sanitary pass mandatory for all ticket holders to get, which means you have to have a proof of valid vaccination. You have to have a negative you know, COVID test, something of the sort to show that, that you're okay. But I still worry with that many people going to a conference in Paris is the city ready for it? Are Ethereans were ready for it? They've limited the number of attendees at the event itself. Everyone is so stir crazy that loads of people without tickets have descended on Paris as well. And there's a whole slew of side events and things which I'm sure will not be quite so carefully managed. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Last year, I, I was within two hours of getting on a train to go to ECC last year. I had a ticket and I had the travel oh booked and it was right at the last minute. I decided, no, I'm not going to go. You know, I've got a vulnerable person in my household and it was so early in, in COVID, we didn't really understand it. And 
I feel now it was a good decision, although I missed people at the time. Hopefully this year, with so many vaccinated and with a better understanding of this this thing, it won't be so impactful and, and will all turn out well. But it's uh, certainly going to be something of a rave up. Yeah, well, I was saying right before this podcast that Ben, you and I, we've never officially met in person, but I swear one of the Ethereum conferences is going to be the pinpoint, the focal point in which we actually do an episode where we're in the same room together. And I I really can't wait for that. For this ETCC event, what are some of the panels and the speakers that you're most looking forward to? Because given that, you know, it's a limited capacity and there's going to be many people who, who don't get tickets. I took the liberty to kind of pick out the ones that I am really excited to hear. And man, they have so many tracks. Mm. They've got Web3 track, decentralized finance track, security track. Wow. I'm like very impressed by the breadth of like the different topics they're going to cover. I know which one I'm very much looking forward to, but I want you to go first. See if see if our <laughs> thinking is the same. Um, and well, don't say Ethereum 2.0 because that's obvious. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. You, <laughs> you preempted me. Yeah, Ethereum 2.0, of course. Yeah, what else is there? Gaming. There's an interesting one. Gaming track. I haven't seen that before in an Ethereum conference. This event's interesting. It's community-driven, and it's very much the speakers are sort of drawn from the community of doers and coders and protocol engineers. There are very few celebrities on the guest list. You know, it's not like the kind of Bitcoin conference where half the speakers seem to be kind of crypto celebrities. This is for people who are building, who are technical, who really, you know, want to get a dig in deep into the protocol. So I think that sort of distinguishes it. DEFCON's a bit the same as well, distinguishes it a bit from uh, other conferences. Do you get that feeling about it, Christine? What's your view? Well, I was shocked that for, yeah, 80% of these panels, I, I've never heard of these people mm. at, at all. Like, I'm sorry, but Stefan Starflinger, I've never heard of you. Vasily Shapovalov, I've never heard of you. And this is within the Ethereum 2.0 track. And I like to pride myself on the fact that, you know, I've done my Ethereum 2.0 mm. research report. I know many developers through Ben. I do this podcast. I have many contacts with the Ethereum 2.0 development side. And the fact that I don't know so many of these people, I'm like, wow, this makes me think that, yeah, 100%, I want to listen in on these talks. 100%, this is a more technical developer focused event for people who may not be well known on the Twitter sphere. Like they may not have like a million followers and and, and are verified, but they're the people that are, are actively participating within the community. DevCon, I do kind of think has a more celebrity vibe. I I do feel like many of the people who headline are more crypto celebrities than they are builders, but it's cool that for ETCC, there's no like, these are the people who are headlining. And it's really just like focused on the topics themselves. ETCC this year has a full track dedicated to crypto economics, tokenomics, that I think is going to be very interesting. And one they have called the potential for a new digital gold standard. And I love that because I think there's many misconceptions around Bitcoin and it's parallel to gold. And many people don't understand the history behind why the gold standard failed and why many countries got off the gold peg. So that one I'm very much looking forward to. And again, hosted by a person I have never heard about before, Alison Rachel. 
Splendid. Yeah, there's so much. Uh, it's in my time zone near enough. So I'm a bit spoilt for choice over the next few days about what to be watching. But uh, perhaps we can do a roundup in in a week or two. Christina, I need to correct you on something. We did meet. We met at DevCon in Osaka and you interviewed me. So, <laughs> And so maybe next DevCon in Bogota, I just won a discounted ticket to go to DevCon in Bogota whenever it happens. I joined an ETH staker event last weekend and won the lottery. So I uh, guaranteed a ticket because it is a lottery getting DevCon tickets, which is really tough. So I'm very pleased about that. So maybe next time Bogota. Yes, let's do that. Let's do that. And also I meant more like, you know, since we started the podcast, we haven't seen each other ever in person. Of course we've <laughs> talked. Of course I remember. Huh? No, I don't remember. I didn't remember. But now it's coming back to me. <laughs> It's hard because, yes, um, so it feels like so long ago. Everybody who works in crypto, they say, you know, every year feels like five. Yeah, at least a lifetime, a lifetime that DevCon seems ago. So much has happened. Yes. Yeah, so, so ECC, for people who don't know, we're going to be linking the full agenda in our show notes today. If you're interested in, in checking out any of the tracks that we talked about, it'll be a great one to learn more about Ethereum and Ethereum protocol. And we highly recommend tuning in if you're able these next few days, or I guess listening back to it since this show will come out after the conference ends. Well, that is it for the show today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please be sure to join us again next week for another weekly roundup of your markets, tech, and community news related to the ongoing and active evolution of the Ethereum blockchain. If you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. You can also subscribe to our newsletters. I write every other week on what's new in ETH2, which you can find at eth2.news. Or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. Christine's newsletter is called Valid Points and comes out every Wednesday. You can find that at coindesk.com. See you all next week for mapping out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Bye, everyone. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau. Additional production support by Teddy Osterbahn. With music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.